Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your steadfast love. You have never gone back on a promise. From the promise that you would, through the offspring of Eve, you would put an end to all who oppose you, to the promise that through the offspring of Abraham, you would bless every family of the earth, to the promise made to David that from his lineage, an everlasting throne would be established. All of these promises are summed up and fulfilled in your son, the Messiah Jesus. He has and is conquering all who would oppose you. He is gathering a family from all nations, and he rules on a throne that you have established and will not be stopped. Lord, we confess that we do not think often enough of your son's return. We do not think often enough of the eternal glory of being in your holy presence. When we are there, all the suffering of this life, any sacrificial love that we show each other, any earthly temptations we refuse, these will all be nothing. We will be overwhelmingly satisfied with your goodness and no sacrifice in this life will compare to being in your presence. Lord, we confess that we get entangled in sin. Each of us in some way close our ears to your call and blind our eyes to your truth. In some way, we are afraid of the transformation you want to do in us, and so we cling to earthly comforts. We seek the affirmation of people rather than your pleasure. Lord, forgive us for setting our sights so low and for being content with earthly glory that will melt to nothing in your presence. Help us to give ourselves wholly over to you. Father, we pray for our sister churches in the Northwest, for the Branch Church in Corvallis and Henson Baptist Church in Portland. We ask that their gathering this morning would be a glimpse for them of what awaits for them in, in eternity. Your people living in fellowship, giving you praise and adoration. We ask that the individuals in the church would grow in godliness and charity for one another. We give you thanks for our ability and opportunity to gather here today to praise you, to hear your gospel preached, and to renew our covenant commitment to you together through your supper. We pray for Hans as he delivers your word to us. Give us ears to hear what your spirit has delivered to him through his study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Ryan. You can have a seat. You can open up to the book of Revelation. It's the last book in your Bible. The book of Revelation, starting in chapter 1. I will never forget the moment that I saw my wife, Kelly, in her wedding dress for the first time. Now, I obviously knew what Kelly looked like. I'd seen her with my own eyes innumerable times. I generally knew what her wedding dress looked like. She had generally described it to me. But there was something about the combination of seeing her in that wedding dress, in this new role in my life as my wife in covenant union, and that cast a whole new light on what I had seen before and what I saw before me, or at least what I thought I had seen before. And this was the moment 
as the wedding photographers call it, of the big reveal. In that moment, something previously unknown became a reality for me. You see, I had been thinking about getting married for much of my life. I had been engaged in assisting Kelly in planning it for about eight months. Let's be honest, I didn't do much of the planning. She did most of it. But in that one moment, <clears throat> it all became real in a whole new way. All these intangible, abstract ideas became reality for me. And in that moment, it became fact that I was Kelly Potter's husband and she was Hans Rasmussen's wife. It was almost as if the vow of covenant commitment to come just a few hours later during the actual ceremony was a formality for something that was already real. And it also caused me to see my wife in her full beauty. And this was not clear in the moment, but has dawned on me more and more in the 19 years of marriage that have passed since. In that moment, the reason she was so beautiful did indeed have to do with her outward appearance. She was a knockout, still is. But even more so, the fullness of the faithful and loving wife she has been and will be to me was initiated and came flooding into the reality of my life. I won't know the fullness of her as a wife until we both breathe our last and death parts us. But in that moment, I was able to glimpse the full reality at one point, maybe through a glass darkly, but still I was able to glimpse it. And that moment was indeed the big reveal. Well, the book that we are stepping into now is also a big reveal. But this one has more cosmic consequence, for it reveals the fullness of who Jesus Christ is in the midst of his church, in every age and in every place for the last 2,000 years and for however long he decides to leave us here until he returns. Now, I'm excited to introduce you to the book of Revelation this morning, which we will be unpacking in depth for the next 10 months. I'm excited because I think for many of us, it will help us see Christ and his lordship of our lives more than we have ever seen it before. And I believe that this will encourage us in a world that has warmly embraced chaos and rebellion. My prayer is that it will help us be sanctified as individual members of Christ's church universal, as well as a community who is co-laboring in witness to the gospel here in Salem. And I believe it will give us great peace and trust in the sovereignty of God for whatever comes next. And so we begin here at chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 11 this morning, where we will see an introduction to the revelation of Jesus to his church. An introduction to the revelation of Jesus to his church. If you're taking down notes, you can write down that title this morning. Let's go ahead and read through this morning the, the entirety of our text and then we will get into unpacking it. 11 verses right at the beginning of the book. Revelation 1, 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, 
and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. This is the word of the Lord. This opening 11 verses is the perfect prologue to the rest of the book because in these verses we are given a glimpse of the rest of the book and its visions and themes. This opening 11 verses shows us that throughout Revelation we will see one thing and one thing only, Christ revealed, Christ praised, and Christ enthroned. We will see Jesus Christ, amen? Amen. And hopefully that is what you are going to get trained to look at the book of Revelation for is to see Jesus. Now let's look at this first theme. Throughout Revelation, we will see Christ revealed for witness and blessing. Christ revealed for witness and blessing. You see this in the first three verses. Now the first verse of the book can be seen as its title. It's where the name Revelation comes from. The word in the Greek is apocalypsis. Everybody say apocalypsis. There you go. You know a little Greek now. Apocalypsis. It's the root of our English word apocalypse. Apocalypse which has wrongly been connected to an end-of-the-world idea focused on destruction. But this word means something entirely different, something so different that it actually contradicts the fear-laden idea of apocalypse. Apocalypse is actually intended for hope and for encouragement, not fear. That's the whole point of the book of Revelation, was to give hope and encouragement, not fear. For those that are rebellious against God, well, yes, the book of Revelation is a scary one, with a repeating fact that God's wrath pours out on the unrighteous who refuse his lordship. That is scary. But that is not the main intent of the book, nor is this book written to non-believers. For the Christian, the book of Revelation is the opposite of fear-inducing. It is actually empowering, encouraging, and strengthening because it gives a vision of who Jesus truly is right now. A revelation means something that is covered and somewhat obscured, which is now being revealed. It's like a statue which has the blanket lifted off of it so you can see it in its fullness. You may see the outline now, but once that is revealed, you see it in its fullness. And what is this revelation of, dear friends? Jesus Christ. That's the point of this book. But remember, this book, while we benefit from it, 
And we will find it was written to the fullness of the church across time and space. It was primarily, at the time, written to the church of the first century. This is reinforced in three different places. Verse 2, it says, to show his servants. Verse 4, to the seven churches that are in Asia. And those same churches are then spelled out again in detail in verse 11. Those churches were made up of Jew and Gentile, but this first century church was emerging primarily out of the Jewish scriptures. We forget this in our, our day and age, but remember that those that were Christians in the first century, their Bible was the Jewish Bible. It was the Old Testament. And as the letters became available and the gospels became available, they started to circulate the church. But the church of the first century had a Bible that ended with Malachi. They were completely immersed in the Old Testament. And so when we speak of something that was obscured, now being brought to light, it is specifically speaking of Old Testament prophetic foretelling being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So this book, friends, is not primarily about what will happen in some distant future. It does have some of that, and we'll get into that. But it is instead primarily about what has happened in Jesus Christ, in his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his present enthronement. It's about Jesus then and now. And so Revelation requires us to be intimately tied into the Old Testament, especially the prophets. Throughout this book, there will be imagery and allusions from Genesis and Exodus and the prophetic books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Zechariah, Habakkuk, and especially, as we'll see today, Daniel. Like many of those prophets, John speaks on behalf of a church that has no earthly temple, is in exile throughout the nations under a worldly empire, but looks forward to a temple in which God can dwell amongst his people. And boy, will John be blown away at what that temple is. Because friends, it's you and me and the church throughout the world. Now, part of the reason we just went through Daniel a few months ago was so that these ideas are fresh in your mind for revelation. And as we go through, friends, I'm going to be giving you a ton of scripture, as are the other elders and pastors that step in for me at various points throughout revelation. And so for you, you can take those down and go back and restudy them. We may not even read through the full text on the screen, but we'll put it there so you know where the illusion is coming from, and you'll be able to go restudy them. Now, what we will see throughout the book is that the character known as the Son of Man from Daniel, the Messiah, the divine king that was enthroned by the hand of the Ancient of Days, is the resurrected and glorified Jesus. And you might say, well, duh, Hans, that's what we covered in Daniel. But the reality is, is for the first century church, they didn't necessarily know this in full. People who were coming to faith at the earliest part of the church, they, were, they knew Jesus was special. They knew that he died for them, but they, they didn't know what was going on in the present. They thought, he's dead now. He's been gone for 20, 30 years. What do we do now? And so they needed to have this revelation to understand who Jesus was for them in the moment as an enthroned king, that they weren't waiting for the enthronement in some future day, but that it was occurring right then and there, and it is the same for us. 
And we will see this most definitely next week. But just to begin in orienting our minds in that direction, look with me at just the first two verses again. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. We see here the route of communication, the chain of transmission. It was the revelation about future events. Is that what it says there? It's the revelation of? Jesus. Okay, guys, follow with me here. It's the revelation of? There we go. Not future events. Jesus, the revelation about Jesus originating from God the Father. Then it was given to the resurrected and glorified Christ. It was a vision about Christ given to Christ. And verse 2 tells us that it came from Christ through his angelic messenger to John. And John was then to bear witness to all that he saw, which is the testimony of who Jesus is as the enthroned Messiah, the Christ, contained in the word of God. And John was to tell this to the servants of Christ, the church. So if you are more of a visual learner like I am, this is what it looks like. God the Father to Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ, to his angelic messenger, to the apostle John, to his servants, the church. Now this reminds us of similar visions from the book of Daniel. Angels giving visions from God the Father to a messenger to give to the people of God. And right away, we are taken back to the idea of Daniel's dreams and interpretations and visions that he had not only of his own dreams, but also of King Nebuchadnezzar. You guys remember King Nebi, right? Now, even the language is very similar to Daniel. Recall with me Daniel chapter 2. In that chapter, Nebuchadnezzar had had this odd dream about this statue. He dreamt about the kingdoms of the world by way of symbolism of this statue with a gold head, a silver chest, thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. You can go back and re-listen to it online if you want. Now his own kingdom, Babylon, was the head. And then a series of lesser kingdoms, lesser quality kingdoms that end in the feet picturing a weakened Roman empire occurred. And in the time of that kingdom, the weakened Roman Empire, the vision that he had declares that there would be a stone cut from a mountain by no human hand. It was formed divinely. And it strikes and destroys this entire statue, this entire kingdom, the kingdoms of the world. And that that stone grows into a kingdom pictured by a mountain throughout the whole world. Does this ring a bell at all for any of you? Two people nodded. Anybody? Verbally? Yeah, okay, good. Now look with me at the language in the midst of that story that describes God's ability to reveal mysterious truth. Look up on the screen. This is Daniel 2, 28 through 29. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, but there is a God in heaven who, what's that next word? Reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the, what's that say? Latter days, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. And then he goes on to tell him what the vision looks like. Now it's a vision made known, a vision revealed. And the Lord is one who makes mysteries known and reveals them. That's part of his character. Kind of like if you're talking about me, you're like that tall guy, right? It's a character trait. God reveals things 
mysteries that were previously not made known. This is what he's called in Daniel 2.47. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. That is why the end of verse 2 in Revelation chapter 1 says to make known all that he saw. The wording, we could get into the language and the, the grammar. The wording make known is to reveal. It is a book, Revelation is, that is visual in communication, just like the visions of Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It is meant to be read through the literary toolbox of symbolism revealing that which has been hidden. In fact, the original language, the original language there in Daniel means to make known and it infers symbolism. Excuse me. Now to read symbolism well, we cannot read Revelation literally. To read Revelation literally means to read it in the genre it was intended to be read in, which is symbolic. Instead, the letters of chapter 2 and 3 will begin to lead our mind to understand symbolism as they speak to real-world scenarios pictured with Old Testament symbolism. They'll talk about Balaam and Jezebel and all these Old Testament stories. And these pictures will then be carried out even further into the visions of chapter 4 through chapter 22. And ultimately, the promises of God will be pictured in fulfillment in the conclusion of chapters 21 and 22. Now, Revelation is used by many as the book that intends to show us what will happen in the future. The signs of the times of the end of days. Just for, just for my sake, how many of you have heard it taught that way before? Raise your hand. A few of you. All right. Probably more than half of you. You guys are going to probably be sorely disappointed then because I'm not gonna tell you what microchip is the mark of the beast. <laughs> because I don't believe that's what this book is for. Now this is why Daniel's vision referred to what will be in the latter days. For Daniel at this point in time, at his point in time in exile in Babylon, that vision that he saw that signified the filling of the earth with God's ultimate kingdom was for a latter time. That's why it said for Daniel, latter days. Now, it was for a time off in the far distant future from where he stood. But notice the wording in Revelation 1.1. Notice it. It says, the things which must soon take place. It says at the end of verse 3, for the time is near. This phrase is repeated at the end of Revelation as well. Friends, I want to submit to you, to you that Revelation is not for some far-off, distant future time. It is instead for us to see who Jesus is in the present church age, right now. The visions that we will see are not for then, they're for now, and they're occurring now. For Revelation covers all that the church goes through from the first century until now and will continue to go through until Christ's return as we await the culmination of the kingdom of God filling the whole earth. Now, Daniel had a vision for what would happen in the future when the kingdom of God overcame the kingdoms of the earth. And so it says in Daniel 12, 4, But you, Daniel, shut up the words 
and seal the book. Notice what it says, until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Shut the book for the time of the end. Revelation, however, is on the other side of those events, the events of Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, enthronement, and outpouring of his spirit. And so John says, in Revelation, these words are not to be held for a future time. In fact, the angel tells him these are the revelations meant for the church to understand wherever it finds itself in the present church age. It says that right there in Revelation 22.10. He said to me, do not seal up the words. In other words, open it back up because the time is near. Friends, we are supposed to read Revelation as something that is speaking to the now, the present. And this is why Peter, Paul, and the rest of the New Testament authors speak of the first century as being the last days. Peter, in his Pentecost sermon, said, you are seeing prophecy fulfilled right now in the AD 30s. The church age is the last days. It has been for 2,000 years and will be until Christ's return because the church age is the last time period in the cosmic chronology of God's plan of salvation prior to resurrection and judgment. How sad it is that we should relegate the book of Revelation to be about things out there in the future rather than for what it was intended for, encouragement and clarity for the church right now. It is first and foremost the revealing of who Jesus is amongst his present church, that he is the sovereign king building his kingdom, warring against the darkness, holding us fast in patient endurance. He has been doing this since Revelation's writing at the end of the first century, and it is still true today. Now, there are many theories about how to interpret Revelation. There's theories about how to view it. There's theories about how to break apart the events within it. We may get into some of that, probably not very much. And we must approach it because there are many views, as we did Daniel, with a humility that other views could have merit. Friends, I could teach this whole thing to you. We as pastors and elders could teach it to you. And we could get before the throne and God could say, eh, you guys were wrong. You should have gone with that other view. We have to recognize that. But with this book, as with any other, what we commit to you as elders and pastors is that we're going to teach you the way we know how to do our best to exegete the text based on itself and its surrounding context, to speak as closely to what it was intended to convey by the original author. And so we will be teaching Revelation in a specific school of interpretation. Now, as your uh, hand raising showed earlier, many of you are familiar with, the, with the, uh, the view that's called the chronologically linear future view. You're like, wow, I didn't know I knew that chronologically linear future view. You don't need to write that down. And this is the view in which the visions of Revelation are for some day in the distant future, directly before the second coming of Christ. And the visions are interpreted as being laid out in a line of succession. That's the chronologically linear futurist view. They're a line of su successive execution. Now this view holds that the visions are to be interpreted literally unless otherwise stated. In other words, when it says demonic locusts come out of a pit, uh, that means you should view it as actual locusts coming out of a pit. 
Now, this view originated somewhat recently in the context of the church. For us, it's old, but for the church, it's not old. It was a couple hundred years ago that this view originated. And it did so in a Western worldview that loves to take things and put it in a linear chronology. That's how we operate in the West. But as I hope to show you and we hope to show you, this interpretive school can often get the reader into some troublesome interpretations, especially when you propagate ideas that you are foretelling the future and then those don't come to pass. Instead, what we will submit to you throughout this sermon series is that the primary orthodox view throughout history is the one that matches both the culture of the day and the literary genre in which it was written. If the other is pictured as a straight line going ahead into the future, you can picture the view we're going to teach you in more of a corkscrew fashion, hitting the same ideas over and over again as it moves forward in time, ultimately culminating in the return of Christ. This view, if you want to write it down, is called the progressive recapitulation view. Fancy terms, I know, but it's important for you to know. Everybody say progressive, progressive. recapitulation. You will never, ever use that again, ever. But today, I want you to know it. The reason I want to share it with you is because this is the most orthodox view that has lasted the test of time across 2,000 years. It is the one in which the visions of Revelation are providing truths to speak to the church in every age with a message for the present. It does so through coming back time and time again to the same events of God's sovereign plan of victory, judgment, and redemption. And so, rather than you seeing trumpets and then plagues and then bowls falling in successive order, they will be showing different facets of the same idea, as if you're looking at a diamond and turning it in the light. You'll see the same diamond with different views. This is what recapitulation means. Same item, different views. They will also be moving forward with greater and greater weight, a heaviness as we read them so that we understand them to a greater depth. And that is what the progressive means, progressive recapitulation. Now, it is for that reason that the message of Revelation is indeed a blessing. Friends, I will be honest with you, just like the name, progressive recapitulation and its view is not the sexy way to teach Revelation, right? (laughs) I mean, we don't throw this up on our Instagram. Come learn the progressive recapitulation view. It, everybody'd be like, "What?" Mission's a bunch of nerds, and we'd say, "Amen." We're Bible nerds, right? Amen. This is not the sexy view that's going to bring people in the door and and make the papers. This is the view that is just simply a blessing. But friends, that blessing is far greater than the other views give. Because this blessing is meant as a motivation and encouragement, not for then, not that you've been given some insider information so you can find the signs of the time in the newspaper, man, I'm old, on the internet, sorry, (laughs) but so that you can have a message for the present. It does so through coming back time and time again to the same events and seeing in the midst of them that Jesus is enthroned. Look at verse 2. Blessed is the pastor and the congregants who read this, who hear it, who keep what is written in it. Friends, we are blessed because it is a book through its testimony and witness of who Jesus is now. Because we can be encouraged that nothing can stand against him or his church. Christ's true church can suffer trials and tribulations 
and persecution and slander and hatred and chaos and even martyrdom. And we can be at peace that God is still on the throne and guiding all of history to the proper end. An end which he is ultimately glorified in and that we are brought into his loving and merciful and gracious presence. To God be the glory. But notice that this is not just a cerebral exercise. Verse 3 speaks of keeping and who keep what is written in it. What does this keeping mean? What commands are to be kept? I thought this was just a bunch of visions. Well, friends, within these visions, but especially within the letters of chapters 2 and 3, John commands the church then and now with certain verbs. We'll see these throughout, so don't feel like you have to write this down. Just listen for a moment. The church is commanded to testify of Jesus, to hear God's word, to not fear, to repent of your sin, to hold fast to the faith that you have been given, to strengthen what remains, to wake up from your slumber, to remember what you have received and heard, to be zealous, to fear God and give him glory, to come out of the worldly system, to praise God, to worship God, and to be holy. We are blessed as we read aloud, as we hear, and as we keep what is written in this book, for we are in a time in which we need the strength of God's Spirit to hold us fast. And so Revelation casts our eyes on the resurrected and glorified Christ, where we will also see Christ praised as Savior, King, and God. Christ praised as Savior, King, and God. We see this in verses 4 through 8. Part of what makes Revelation so beautiful in its imagery is that it forces us to view our present reality through what we can't see. It truthfully tells us, friends, things are not what they seem according to your earthly senses. We may get that feeling. We may look around like we have over the last two years and God, something doesn't seem right. But what this tells us is, indeed, things are not what they seem according to our earthly senses. And on the earthly plane, this letter is from the Apostle John to the seven churches that were located in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. But the heavenly plane is just as real. It just may not be as tangible to our senses. And the warfare that is occurring there and all that God is allowing and commanding and doing is not obvious to us here. So God is giving John and giving us, his servants, a view as if the veil is pulled back into cosmic reality that is impossible for our senses to know. It's a revealing. In our earthly senses, we wonder what is taking God so long. Does anybody else want to confess that today? Lord, come on. That's like my prayer every morning. Sinful. (laughs) But it is. It's real. We wonder why 2,000 years ago he acted in such a prominent way through the cross and resurrection, but since then seems to be almost silent by the miraculous means he once used. Am I the only sinner that feels that way? 
And this has caused some to manifest false signs and wonders and concoct errant theologies that are at their core superstition. And I believe it has caused many to see the book of Revelation through a literal filter where they are wondering why there have not been any demonic locusts or hailstones the size of small cars. And since there have been none of those things, they posit, it must be meant to speak to signs of a future time when those things will literally happen. But friends, remember, our job when we read scripture is to unearth and exegete the original author's message and their intent based on what they wrote, not what we want to believe, not what would make us pay attention in a sci-fi movie. And the genre of this book requires seeing it through symbols, not literally. Seeing the truth that the triune God is sovereign and victorious through the work of Jesus Christ. John is writing to the first century churches of Asia Minor, and as, he, as we will see, to all the churches across time and space using this imagery. And he's writing because of what already occurred through the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of Christ. He is writing to them of the gospel and its outpouring. And this is seen in verses 4 through 8. Revelation is the bow on top of the gift of God's gospel. Daniel 7 captured this beautiful throne room scene. We'll go into it and look back at it next week. But you might remember it from Daniel, this throne room scene in anticipation of the redemptive work of the Messiah to come. But Revelation speaks to that same scene, and it takes that scene where the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, and the Holy Spirit are all doing separate things. And Revelation helps us to see the truth that all three are God, three persons in one triune God. Revelation is the cult's worst enemy, the cults that don't believe in the Trinity. Look at his greeting here. He says, grace to you, the church, from him who is and who was and who is to come. Friends, this speaks to the ever-present or omnipresent, the eternal one the one that is the ancient of days that presented himself to Daniel, the great I am that showed himself to Moses, the one we know as God the Father. And then immediately after that, it says, we see that the seven spirits who are before his throne, we will see throughout Revelation the vast importance and meaning of numbers as symbols. Friends, the numbers are not to be taken literally. The numbers 7, 10, 12, and 1,000 and their multipliers will be used throughout the book, all meaning fullness and perfection and wholeness in some capacity. Christ, the name Christ, for example, is used seven times in Revelation. The name Jesus and the name Spirit are used 14 times. The number 12 occurs 12 times in describing the New Jerusalem. I could give you way more, but I won't. Numbers are important. And here the seven spirits speak of the Holy Spirit, not seven distinct spirits, but God's perfect and completely whole spirit. And John is using language here from the book of Zechariah chapter 4 where he talks about the spirit of God going throughout all the earth having seven eyes of the Lord. This pictures God's spirit moving throughout the earth. It's the perfect Holy Spirit. God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Then in Revelation, we see next Jesus, God the Son, who it says was the faithful witness. The faithful witness, right there in verse 5. 
The Greek word for witness being martus, from which we get our Greek word or our English word martyr. Jesus, who was faithful in his death to testify to the truth of God's word, he is the firstborn of the dead, not because he was created, but in his earthly incarnate form, Jesus was the pioneer of resurrection that we all look toward. The one that by his death paid the price for your sin and mine on the cross, and then through resurrecting three days later, paved the way to God's forgiveness and granting of eternal life. He is the one that tore the veil so that we could step into the holy of holies in relationship with God the Father. Amen? Amen. And because of this, Jesus is also the ruler of the kings on earth. This idea of the firstborn speaks of primacy and references back to the line from our reading from Psalm 89 earlier today. Notice how it's used here. You shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And God says, I will make him, this king figure that he is prophesying, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. You see, in using this wording, John is saying that Jesus is the ultimate sovereign who allows earthly rulers to attempt to carry out governance, but they continuously show that they are rebellious to his full reign. Jesus is the way we understand the fullness of God, the way we reconcile with who God is, and the means by which we glorify God. He is the perfect imprint, Hebrews says. He is the fullness of the image of God. Jesus is God and King. Friends, is that true for you? Or is he merely your ticket to get to the good place when you die? Revelation teaches that he is the King enthroned over the present church. John continues by reminding the hearers of what God has done in the testimony and witness of Jesus' death and resurrection, and he does so through a small doxology or statement of praise in verses 5 and 6. It says, He loves us, and by his death in which he took our place and substituted himself for us, it says he has freed us from our sins. The just judgment which they deserve and enslavement by all, the just judgment that you deserve and I deserve, we are freed from that. And we are done so, it is done so by his blood. And this set of redeemed individuals, this work of the cross and the resurrection did not just save us from our sins, did not just grant us forgiveness, it also created a people a kingdom of people who submit to their king's reign day in and day out and help one another to do so through the new covenant. This people who are, it says, priests. Notice verse 6. He made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This people who are priests acting in service to God the Father, but also in our testimony, bringing sinners close to God's presence through the sacrifice of Jesus. Like priests, we have unmeditated access to God through Jesus Christ, and we maintain a faithful witness to the world as we willingly suffer for Christ. And for all of this work, for which Revelation is the exclamation point on the end of the sentence, John says to him, be glory and dominion forever and ever. 
Amen. So be it. John then calls on a number of Old Testament images to speak clearly that Jesus has accomplished these things, and in so doing, he is the one to whom the entire Old Testament was pointing. It says he is coming in the clouds, a reference to the throne room scene of Daniel 7, the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. It says every eye will see him. This is a reference to the fact that his kingdom will be a kingdom like that mountain of the vision of Nebuchadnezzar that would fill the entire earth. And because of this, those who die outside of Christ mourn on account of him. They, like Israel, had their chance to see and hear the good news of Jesus through the witness of his church. How has he filled the entire earth, dear friends? Through the church through the proclamation of the gospel, through the testimony of the church. And he continues to do so. And so those that hear the gospel of Jesus and refuse, they will mourn on account of him. They, like Israel, had their chance through the witness of the church and yet refused and stood firm in rebellion. If that's you today, I beg of you to repent. I beg of you to submit to Christ as king. And for this, it says their mourning will be heavy, especially on the day of judgment. He uses verbiage here. Notice it says, behold, verse 7, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. He's pulling here from Zechariah again. Zechariah 12.10. He's saying that Jesus is the one who was pierced on our behalf And those who refuse him or refuse to bow the knee to him will mourn. They will weep and wail. But even with this heavy outcome, he finishes with the word, Amen. So be it. Even so, Amen. Why? Because Jesus is deserving of the throne. He is God. He is one with the ancient of days, the eternal, the almighty God and creator. Jesus is God. Jesus is the ancient of days. That is what Revelation is telling us. Jesus wasn't just some good teacher who came and gave us a moralistic philosophy. He is the very God who created us, and he is the very God who will judge us righteously. He will be coming again to bring all of this to fulfillment. The Old Testament gave glimpses of this idea of a triune God. Here's one, for example, out of Isaiah 44, 6. It says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer. Notice the two characters, the Lord of hosts. But then he says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. As the Trinity is in the Old Testament as well. In Jesus, God has inaugurated his kingdom and all that remains is for his people to endure until his return where he, as God, will judge the living and the dead. Until then, Revelation helps us to see that our place in the kingdom and our worship of its king is not on hold for some distant future when we see signs of the times. It is for right now. Because in Revelation, and even in the rest of these verses this morning, we see Christ enthroned amidst his patiently enduring assembly. Christ enthroned amidst his patiently enduring assembly.
Jesus can say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, because he is God. He is the King. The Jews would start and still do their prayers to God, O King of the universe. Friends, that is the risen and glorified Jesus. He is that now, not just at some day in the future. Right now, is he king of your life? We see him enthroned in Revelation amidst his patiently enduring assembly. And in this last portion of three verses in chapter one, we get more details of this book, the the who, who from, who to, where. We see that while it is an apocalyptic vision in overall genre, Revelation is odd because it's also a letter. It's written from John to the seven churches in Asia. We see that in verses four and nine. Now there has been debate throughout the centuries about if this John was John the Apostle who also wrote the gospel according to John, who was Jesus' close friend and disciple, or if this is a different John that some have called John the Elder. Now this author uh, seems to have had great authority, whoever he was, and credibility in the Asian churches specifically, a place where we know John the Apostle was an elder. In verse 2, he is spoken of as the one who bore witness to the word of God, a pretty good title for somebody who writes a gospel. And it would fit that he was being persecuted in exile on the Isle of Patmos because of his growing influence for the kingdom of God, which was making Rome really uncomfortable. Now, all of this internal evidence, plus the witness of early church fathers like Polycarp and Irenaeus, lead us to believe that this was most likely the apostle and disciple John. And so that's the perspective from which we will be teaching. Now, we also see that John was writing in real life to seven specific churches in Asia Minor, what we know today as Turkey, right there on the west side of Turkey. And you can see Patmos off to the side as an island down there as well. Now, one of these, Ephesus, was where John was said to have pastored later in life. But the number seven here was not meant to limit the audience of the letters to just these churches, Because this letter became what's called an encyclical that would go and cycle through the churches. This number seven was merely to stand as a place filler on behalf of all the churches throughout the entire world and throughout the church age. Seven being the number of wholeness and perfection. It is the members of these churches throughout time and space and the saints within them to whom Revelation is being written. So friends, congratulations, Revelation is written to you. It is written to provide a call and empowerment to endurance and perseverance no matter how the world around us, backed by Satan himself, comes against us. For things are not what they seem. There is a warfare occurring in which those who are part of his true Israel are witnesses. And you're going to see this throughout Revelation, this idea that the church is the fullness of Israel. That it is made up of Jew and Gentile, those who are truly Christ's. Remember that the word church literally means the Lord's called out people. It is deeply related to the Greek ekklesia and the Hebrew kahal, which both mean summoned group or summoned assembly. Friends, this is why we state that without the physical gathering together of God's people, there is no church. And we can see in John's writing that he is speaking to this faithful, enduring assembly. 
The language that he uses in calling the church priests and kingdom comes from Israel. It comes from the ceremony on Mount Sinai in which the law of God was mediated through Moses and his people were called to be his ambassadors. This is Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. God says from Mount Sinai to his people Israel, he says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak of the people of Israel. Notice he's using the exact same language to speak to the church made up of Jew and Gentile. And so throughout the letter of Revelation, John will speak to the promises to Israel being fulfilled in Jesus and in Jesus' restoration of the world. But he'll do so on a much grander scale. Rather than just ethnic Jews, we're going to see an international people of all tribes, languages, and ethnicities, both Jew and Gentile, making up God's patiently enduring assembly of saints. Rather than just the small sliver of land of Israel being his for his people, we will see God victorious over all nations, and we will see him remake the entirety of creation for his patiently enduring assembly. Rather than wait for brick-and-mortar earthly temple to be rebuilt in which a reflection of God's glory can dwell, we will see in Revelation God himself housing his people and being their temple. We will see it beyond what we could ever imagine. There will be no need for a special period of time in which the promises of God to Israel are fulfilled for in the culmination of his kingdom, the answers to their promises are far greater than they could have ever hoped for. And this should give us great hope and encouragement as we wage the daily warfare on this earth. Revelation will provide us with vision to see reality, not in some distant period of time, but in the here and now. For it is in the here and now that John spoke to the church in verse 9 and called them and called us. Notice the present tense. His partners in tribulation. Notice that. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Friends, if you spend your days combing through uh, the internet to look at newspaper articles, to see when the, or when the tribulation is coming, you're missing the point. We are partners now in the tribulation, brothers and sisters in the now existing kingdom. And we are now patiently enduring in this broken world through our common faith in the risen Jesus. Don't let the comforts of being Americans confuse you that we are not partners in the tribulation. It is in the midst of this patiently enduring tribulation and suffering that we are able to rise above all the chaos and sin and death that surrounds us and proclaim that we are truly ruling with Christ. You might say, Hans, I don't, I don't think I'm ruling right now. Come take a look at my life. Well, as commentator G.K. Beale puts it, listen to this quote. Faithful endurance through tribulation is the means by which one reigns in the present with Jesus. Patient endurance is how we rise above when the entire world is freaking out about what's going on around it. 
We, the patiently enduring assembly of God, rise above it and say, we know a greater truth. Our king reigns. We are at peace. Brothers and sisters, because Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave three days later, ascended into heaven and sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father on high, because he has poured out his spirit into his church, we can know right now, along with our brothers and sisters throughout all ages and across the world, that we will never be defeated. In Jesus, the promises that we read in Psalm 89 are true. We, his offspring, will be established forever. His throne will be established forever. We shall endure forever. His throne shall endure forever. Can I get an amen? Amen. This letter of Revelation, this apocalyptic, symbolic letter, this book of the revealing of Jesus Christ promises us that if we read it, if we hear it, And if we practice what it commands, we will be blessed. And this is not a false blessing like the prosperity gospel promises. It will promise us suffering and trial and tribulation. But it will promise us a proper and realistic view of Jesus as our King and Savior. And that will be enough. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to call each of you throughout this next 10 months, every week, to read aloud in your quiet time, make it not quiet by reading aloud, the section that we cover in the book of Revelation on Sunday. I want to call you to study the verses that we put up out of the Old Testament. And if you do this, you will have your heart open to see Jesus in the present reality as victorious and conquering king who reigns on high. See that he has called you to patiently endure the tribulation of this world until he returns to finish what he has begun. Let it feed your soul. Of the world who refuses his invitation of grace, he says this, their heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But brothers and sisters, to you, his children, whom he has justified, is sanctifying and will glorify. He says through revelation, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Let us pray together that in his spirit, we, Mission Fellowship, the members that make this church, that we become who Christ wants us to become through the study of this book. Amen? Amen. Amen.